0: Brethren, I hope you all had a good and blessed time of contemplation over the Christmas week. And Last Lord's Day we opened the scriptures together and considered the reality of the fact that in Christ we do in fact have rich, abundant, and eternal blessings. One of the texts, of the many texts that we studied together last time, was 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 wherein the Apostle Paul teaches us the following. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What a beautiful and simple passage this is, and yet there is an entire ocean of truth within this one passage. And so in contemplating the principles of that text, we considered, first of all, the eternal riches that are found in Christ, who is indeed the Lord of lords, the King of kings. We then talked about our poverty as lost sinners and the fact that apart from Christ, we are bankrupt people. And then thirdly and finally, we talked about last time our true riches in Christ as those who have placed our faith and trust in him. We have no merit on our own. Our only merit and hope and trust is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is the case that we have in him all the blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Brethren, I would suggest to you that this is a principle, this is a truth that we need to continue to meditate on, contemplate, and grow in. Time and again... I believe that Scripture calls us to this contemplation to calculate and evaluate the true value of things. Because I believe that we need this constant recalibration of our hearts and minds of what really matters. Because we tend to overvalue the possessions of this life while devaluing the eternal riches of Christ and of his kingdom. And this is why one of the texts that we considered last time was Luke chapter 12 and verse 15 where the Lord Jesus Christ said this. He says, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Here again, this is a small verse, but it contains an ocean of truth that we need to think about on a regular basis. When you think about what's being compared here, Jesus is comparing one's own life to one's own possession, and he's saying what you own doesn't add to or establish the substance and value of your life. When you consider that comparison, remember this, our lives, our souls, they're eternal, but our possessions, they're not. The things that we own in this life, they're destroyed by rust. Moths, taken by thieves, in the end, all these things in this life, it's all passing away, as the Apostle John says. And clinging to those things, as I said last Lord's Day, is like holding fast to an an anchor, thinking that it's a floating device. Luke chapter 12 and verse 15 should remind us of the following. The devil would have us to believe that this fallen world is all that there is in life. And that this world can actually enrich our souls, giving us joy and peace as only God himself can give. In fact, Satan himself, who is by definition a lunatic, someone who thinks that he is something that he truly is not, he sought to tempt Christ, you will remember, in the wilderness, As we read in Luke chapter 4, he said to Christ in all of his arrogance and pride, he said, I will give you all this dominion, that is, all the kingdoms of this world. I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered, answered and said to him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You know, when you think about it, Satan is something of a a one-trick pony. He has lots of different temptations and deceptions, but at the end of the day, it all boils down to this matter of his seeking to draw us away from this privilege and priority of worshiping the Lord our God. God alone. At the end of the day, that's all he's seeking. To draw us away from the worship of God so that we would exalt him. Brethren, this is one of the reasons why I have to say that as I began my ministry in your midst as your pastor, I began with the subject of the jealousy of God. What is God jealous over? What is he jealous about? He's jealous over this matter of The worship of him and him alone. In fact, I would say to you that the primacy and importance of this doctrine, which is found throughout scripture, is oftentimes lacking in modern pulpits. But we have to remember that even the Decalogue begins with this principle and truth regarding the jealousy of God. God himself says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a, what? Jealous God. And that's why he then says in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14, you shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. It is a remarkable thing that God calls himself by name Jealous. And again, what is he jealous for? He's jealous for the devotion and love and adoration of his own people. His desire is that we would worship him and nothing or no one else. It's a simple principle and truth, but brethren, it is foundational to everything. I believe that the Christmas holiday and season is an opportunity to remember this key principle, that our Lord and Savior alone is to be the object of our worship. In fact, I think one of the beautiful things about Matthew chapter 2, when we read about the Magi, and how it is that when they found the Christ child, they gave him Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But more, most importantly, what did they do? They bowed down and worshiped him. Why? Because this one who was born in Bethlehem is the one who would go forth and be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth, it says in Micah chapter 5, are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Why? Because he is the eternal son of God. And why did they worship him? Because as we just read, as Scott read, in Isaiah chapter 9, we are promised that the child who would be born to us the son who is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And the Magi worshipped him again. Why? Because in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, the one who is born of a virgin, his name is Immanuel. With us is El. God. This is why I love the hymns like Silent Night. I remember singing these words for the first time as a child of God. Singing Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Here again, an entire ocean of truth and theology He is worthy of worship because he is the everlasting, ever-living, almighty God. He came in his first advent in the flesh. And brethren, he's coming again. Last week we considered his first advent. But we must also consider his second advent. At his second advent, the standard of worship remains the same. The child who was born to us was worshipped as he deserved to be by those who believed in him and trusted him. When he comes again, worship will be required at his second advent. In Philippians chapter 2, which we considered recently, the apostle Paul reminds us of the fact that At the name of Jesus, when he comes again, at the name of Jesus, every knee will, what? Bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The children of God will do this as an act of worship. The lost will make this confession as a final confession before their eternal Judgment. Brethren, we need to think about the fact that we are called to remember not just the first advent of Christ, but we're called as well to look towards his second coming, his second advent. And that's why this morning, brethren, I would like for us to consider the Lord's second advent, his coming and his return. First of all, I'd like for us to consider the timing of his second advent, the timing of Of his second advent secondly this morning I'd like for us to consider the consequences of his second advent what will happen when he returns and then thirdly and finally I want us to consider the Christians jealousy for his second coming we too must be jealous for the glory of God longing for and having an earnest zeal and desire for Christ and his coming Whatever your eschatology is, that must be the centerpiece of your longing. I think every time I've ever gotten into a debate with somebody over their eschatology, by the way, I don't enter into debates over eschatology, it's usually people who want to come to me and enter into a debate over eschatology. And I always want to make sure that by the time we're done talking about whatever, I always want to make sure that that individual is longing for Christ's return, whatever your eschatology is. Because if you don't have that, you don't have anything. Whatever your eschatology is. But first of all, I want us to think about and consider the timing of Christ's second advent In fact, let me make a prediction regarding his second advent. And People are getting nervous right now. Here's my prediction regarding the second advent of Christ. Are you listening? It will be on time. There. I guarantee it, by the way. Beyond that, we don't know, right? And by the way, that's an important thing to confess. I don't know. We don't know. It's good to say that. It's good to acknowledge that. Remember with me the fact that in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus gathered the disciples together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? What did he say? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Don't ever forget the principle of what you have in this text right here. You don't know when. This is the only thing you need to worry about and think about is your ministry in planet Earth regarding the advancement of the gospel. That's your eschatology. Telling others about Jesus and the fact that he's coming again. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men with, in white clothing stood beside them, They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Nothing about timing, nothing about a prediction of what year, what month, what day. Just a general description of the manner in which he will return and descend. Brethren, let's admit it. It is a normal human tendency to, to raise the same question of the disciples. Lord, is now the time? And how many times have we seen in the news all kinds of events taking place and, and we, we wonder, is it time? And by itself, it's not wrong to think those things, but we have to be careful not to allow those questions in our minds to overrule this principle It is not for us to know the times and the epochs which the Father has. Tithemi is the root word. Tithemi has fixed by his own authority. That that Greek word tithemi, which is the root word being used here in Acts chapter 1, that speaks of something like a, a, a pillar that is established for the support of a building, for example. It is something that is in the ground. It's not going anywhere. It's not going to topple one way or the other. It's fixed. So we're not going to make adjustments to it. God isn't going to change it because he himself does not change. His decrees do not change. By the way, we we're just saying that. There is no shadow of What? Turning with thee. What God has ordained will come about. And that's why we sing, Great is thy faithfulness. In fact, Paul uses similar language when he speaks of the fixed reality of the coming day of judgment when preaching in Athens in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. Paul says, after saying that God is calling all men to repent, He says, why? Because he has fixed, again, from the root word tithemid, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. When is it going to happen? It's going to happen right on time. Whenever that is. Whenever that is. And so when we in our hearts ask the question Lord is it time we have to remember we don't know we don't know and that's okay you know I think one of the principles of biblical exegesis is is that we have to understand that there are things that God reveals and there are things that he does not reveal to us and it's okay And we have to be careful not to write into the white spaces of Scripture things that we want to know or might want to imagine that we know when, when, again, when God has not revealed it to us. And I think one of the helpful texts of Scripture that helped me as a young believer is the text of Deuteronomy 29.29, which says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. There are things that God has revealed. There are things that are secret and that we don't know. And it's okay. You know, a good parent will teach their children things that they ought to know and withhold things that they don't yet need to know. I remember a I may have mentioned this before. I remember sitting in front of the TV as I think I was like maybe six years old or something, watching the TV and and seeing how they were, remember this? uh, Some of you are old enough to remember. They were predicting that uh, the San Andreas Fault was going to be activated and that Southern California, part of it, was just going to go into the ocean. Remember those predictions? I remember watching that and thinking, oh, my. I I didn't need to hear that. Uh, Terrified me. There are things that we tell little children, there are things that we don't, because their souls, their minds are not ready to process the information. That's what parents do. Our Heavenly Father does the same. There are things that he tells us, and there are things that he doesn't tell us for our good. I believe that Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a good caution for our souls. But if we fail to trust the Lord in knowing and understanding that there are things that we ought to know that he has revealed to us and there are things that he has not revealed to us for our good, if we don't understand that, we're going to try to enter into the realms of the things that we don't understand or don't know and try to fill in the blanks. Does anybody remember the name of Harold Camping? Harold Camping. He was best known for his teaching on the Family Radio Network, which was a broadcast that was heard in the U.S. and around the world. I, I didn't know that, but uh, apparently a lot of people uh, were uh, listened to him. Camping gained notoriety when he pr- predicted the rapture, that it would take place on May 21st in, in the year 2011. And with that, he predicted the end of the world five months later uh, that would occur on October 21st, 2011. Whatever you think of the year 2011, clearly this didn't happen. The end of the world did not take place. And by the way, in his pride and arrogance, he even supplied the number that were to be raptured, which he predicted would be about 200 million people or approximately 2.8% of the population in the year 2011. So when May 21st, 2011 failed, he revised his prediction to that of October 21st, 2011, went on his family radio network and spent approximately $100 million advertising once again the end of the world and it didn't take place. You know, when you read things like that, you think to yourself, why do we do this? And he's not the only one. There have been plenty of other people who have made predictions regarding the end times. But all this is is a failure to trust our Lord and Savior who told us it's not for you to know it's not for you to know it's okay for us not to know look with me at Psalm 31 one of the reasons why I believe it's so important for us to confess there are things I don't know and it's okay to confess with Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine that there are secret things that God does not reveal to us, and it's okay, it's good actually. In Psalm 31, and I'll start with verse 9, the psalmist says this, watch carefully what he says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my ears with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity, and my body has wasted away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I am forgotten as a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel." For I have heard the slander of many, terrors on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they schemed to take away my life. Now, notice, in all this distress, the psalmist then says this, But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. And then he says this, my times are in your hand. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. You know what, brethren, if you take that last confession, my times are in your hand, if you remove that, everything else in the list vanishes. If we fail to believe and trust that our times are in the hands of God, that our days are ordained of him, then we will wander away from this matter of trusting him, confessing, as the psalmist says, I trust in you, O Lord, you are my God. Instead, if we imagine vainly that our times are in our hands, then suddenly the question of trust shifts if we actually imagine and believe that we're the managers and sovereign lords of our, over our own lives and our times, then we enter into the vanity of self-trust rather than a God-centered trust. Brethren, there's a reason why we don't have a crystal ball to see the future, really. If we had a crystal ball to see the future, We would, instead of living our lives in the present, we would fixate on the more pleasant events of the future, waiting for those. I can't wait for that good event to happen. Setting aside all the other events of life, right? Trials that await us would haunt us, though, day and night, and we would live in fear of what may come or what will come based upon the crystal ball. And with that dread and fear of trials and afflictions, we would live in fear of our circumstances. Because of that, our meditation would shift from trusting in God and His wise providence to planning and prepping for the next hardship. And Frankly, there are countless ways in which we would just sin and sin and sin, being anxious for what's coming. But without a crystal ball, We are left with the privilege of waiting on the Lord and following him, confessing all the while, my times are in your hands. Brethren, I recently mentioned to you my bout with cancer back in 2018, and I have to say, that was such a rebuke to my soul. It showed me and revealed to me that I was living my life with the anticipation of somehow that, that I was in control of my life far more than I really was. We, we're not in control of our lives. Um, but what James says is really so important. He says, he says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You know, the human mind says, yeah, but I got plans. I've got this on my, my calendar, and I've, I've got these events scheduled, and I'm, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do that blah, 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 he says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. You know, for a person who wants to think a lot of themselves and a lot of their life, that's a little rough, but that's reality. It goes like that. And then he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or That's another way of saying, live your lives in such a way that you are confessing each and every moment, my times are in your hands. By the way, there's a hymn by that title. I thought of having us sing it, but I thought, I, I don't know if anybody knows that. At some point in time, we're learning that, okay? Okay. That's not a threat, it's just a gentle, kind promise. We need to learn good hymns like that because you know what? We need to confess that our times are in his hands. I love what Spurgeon says about this matter of living our lives with the anticipation of Christ and his return. He says, oh beloved, let us try every morning to get up as if that were the morning in which Christ would come. And when we go up to bed at night, may we lie down with this thought. Perhaps I shall be awakened by the ringing out of the silver trumpets heralding his coming. Before the sun arises, I may be startled from my dreams by the greatest of all cries: The Lord has come. The Lord has come. What a check. What an incentive. What a bridle. What a spur. Such thoughts as these would be to us. Take this for a guide for your whole life. Our times are in his hands, and the day of his return is fixed. We don't know when it is, but we must live our lives in such a way that we were looking for and longing for Christ and his return. As for our second point, what are the consequences of his second advent? Having just celebrated Christmas, I believe that one of the reasons why Christmas is so popular is because we have the presentation of a Jesus who is just a baby in a cradle. It is the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that the world can at least endure and tolerate But this idea of a Jesus coming again and judging the living and the dead, the world is not too excited about. They can deal with the one, but the other they'd rather not have to address or deal with. And by the way, I'd place myself in that same category as an unbeliever. That's exactly how I was. This is why last Lord's Day we considered the reality of John 3.16, which as I said then is somewhat of a a misunderstood text, at least in the sense that it tends to be isolated as a passage without giving the full context of what is being said in that narrative. God so loved the world. Again, we love that idea of God loving mankind. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that who, whoever believes in him should not perish but have an eternal life. But you keep reading and you get to verse 18 and you see that there are consequences that come with his second advent. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That helps us to understand what it means to perish. There are those who do not believe in Christ who will in fact perish because of their unbelief and rebellion. But it's the verse in the middle verse 17 that helps us to think about where we are right here and now. We are right here and now in verse 17 where Jesus said, for God did not send the the Son into the world to judge the world. In other words, judgment isn't here now, but that the world might be saved through him. That's our hope. That's our calling, is to tell others of the fact that they too can be saved, that now we live in a time of gospel grace and mercy, and it is our privilege not to think about the day of Christ's coming and trying to figure out what month and what year and so forth. No, we're called to send out and dispatch the gospel to all the nations, letting them know that they too can be saved. And as we do, we need to remind others that they don't have the promise of tomorrow. You know, that's a principle not just for the believer, that's a principle for the unbeliever too. You don't have the promise of tomorrow. Paul said in in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2, he says, Now is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, now. God calls on you to respond to his gospel call such that now is the day of salvation Peter says this he says regard the patience of our Lord as salvation why is he waiting and waiting and waiting why is his has his return not yet come Because we live in this period of gospel grace and mercy, we live in this time, whatever the duration will be, we live in this time wherein we are to call others to believe in Christ. And this is why we even see in the book of Revelation the extension of the gospel call. The angel who flies in midheaven in Revelation chapter 14 preaches what? An eternal gospel calling men and women to fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. And the fruit of that angelic proclamation we see in the next chapter where we see saints in glory praising God and singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Here again is God's mercy and grace being extended to humanity even in this final and 11th hour before his final judgment. But the thing we have to keep in mind is this. There's coming a time when his patience will end. There's coming a time when he will, in fact, bring judgment. And this is what we must bring to bear when we share the gospel. Because the Father has fixed the times and the epochs of all things by his own authority, by his own decree. And that when Jesus comes again, he will bring judgment. Again, I say to you, pulpits in the modern day do not talk about this reality of the second advent of Christ. And it's a shame. In John chapter 5, let me ask you to turn there briefly. John chapter 5 and verse 19, we read that Jesus was saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Speaking of the absolute and perfect unity of the Father and the Son. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son." So that all will what? Honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. There's a coming day of judgment, it is the second advent of our Savior. Matthew Henry says this so well, he says, Christ proves his equality with the Father by specifying some of those works which he does that are the peculiar works of God. He does and shall do that which is the peculiar work of God's sovereign dominion and jurisdiction, judging and executing judgment. These two are interwoven as being nearly connected and what is said once is repeated and inculcated Put both together and they will prove that Christ was clear when he made himself equal with God. Jesus, the Son of God, bears this authority of judgment. This is the the authority of God because he is God, the Son. And he is the Father's equal, bearing the equal jealousy for the glory of the Godhead. And this is why Jesus, our great high priest, began his prayer in John 17 crying out to the Father, saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son that the Son may glorify thee. God is glorified in the salvation of his people. He's also glorified in the condemnation of those who reject him. He derives glory from both. In fact, when you look at that text in John chapter 5 and verse 22, when it says that he has given all judgment to the Son, he then says, so that, in other words, the purpose of the Son having this authority to judge, so that all will honor the Son even as, in the same way as they honor the Father. The son of God has this prerogative of judgment and in view of that prerogative of judgment we are to honor the son and thereby honor the father. Again, because of their equality. This is why Jesus says he who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. To a world that will celebrate a baby Jesus gentle, meek, and mild in a crib we must let them know that this same Jesus is coming again and has this authority of judgment and it will take place. Thus God has fixed a day in which he will honor the son and the father will be honored. It is the day of his final judgment when men will be exposed as either sheep or Goats. This is why, again, when we talked about the fact that Jesus in his humility came and became flesh, he became a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, as he says in Philippians 2, even death on a cross, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow. You, as you read that text in your copy of the scriptures, you'll notice that the, the words are in all caps. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where or why are those words in all caps? Every knee will bow. Well, because Paul is quoting, in part, Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, in verses 23 and 24 of Isaiah 45, the Lord says this, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say only in the Lord our righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the day of his judgment, there will be those who will bow the knee as an act of worship. And then there will be those who acknowledge his lordship, but as a confession of their own judgment and shame. This is why I repeatedly say, brethren, the world consists of only two different people. The children of God, as John says, and the children of the devil. There's no third class or category. And this is why we need to be faithful in telling about the Jesus who came in his first advent and who is coming again. You know, as an unbeliever, I, I, I've i shared this with many of you individually and may have said so in the pulpit, but I, I I had a number of people who faithfully shared the gospel with me as an unbeliever, and I treated those Sweet Christians, terribly. They'd come to me and they would just tell me about Jesus, and I would just say, Yeah, whatever. Go away. Debated, my first debate in high school. Uh, I tried to debunk the Bible. They didn't want to hear it. But there was a part of me, remember, somebody who says that they're an atheist, that's really a a self hypocritical statement because we know that there's really is no such thing as an atheist they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness when they say I'm an atheist right they know better in their hearts so I, I would kind of vacillate uh, when I was really really in, into atheism I would say yeah I'm an atheist if you press me on the issue I would do like a lot of atheists would do and they'd say well maybe there might be a god then they kind of slip into the agnostic realm but year after year, I would ignore the gospel that my ears heard, the words of Christ that were shared with me, imagining that I would have another day to deal with the question of the eternity of my soul. I, I would often say to myself, I'll deal with that later. I heard these things, I'll think about it at some point in time and give it serious, serious consideration. That is exactly what the devil wants men to do. He wants them to imagine that they have tomorrow. When none of us can say we have tomorrow, whether believer or unbeliever. And it is simply the product of our own vain imagination to think and imagine that we do, in fact, have the promise of tomorrow. Brethren, i got to tell you, again, this is one of the easiest deceptions that we could ever enter into. One of the easiest traps that we could ever fall into. J.C. Rowell is right when he says, tomorrow is the devil's day. (laughs) Tomorrow is the devil's day. But today is God's. It does not matter how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions, if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. God calls us to live for him Today, whatever time we have, we confess, my times are in your hands. And when we share the gospel with others, what do we say? We tell them, now is the day of salvation. Because that's all you've got. You don't have tomorrow for all you know. so... Considering the timing of our Lord's return, again, that is fixed and ordained by God. Concerning the consequences of his second coming, that will bring about the final judgment and redemption of humanity. Thirdly and finally, brethren, I'd like for us to consider the Christian's jealousy or zeal for Christ in his return. God is jealous for His own glory. We need to have that same jealousy in our heart that He would be glorified in all things, knowing and understanding that He will be glorified when He comes again. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 9:27 reminds us of the fact that it is appointed for men to die once, and what comes after this? A second chance? Purgatory for a period, and after this comes judgment. That's it. But he then says, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait. Not just wait, but eagerly wait for him. And that word speaks of a a deep longing for Christ and and his second coming. A similar word is used by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 where he says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we wait? Eagerly. Earnestly. Earnestly zealously. Brother, we need to be zealous for Christ and for his return. We need to be thinking about him and his return. You know, Isaiah 9-6 is such a traditional Christmas text that we read and I think we even have a, a Christmas tree ornament, it's a ribbon I think it's Isaiah 9:6, and which, again, it's very common for us to think about Isaiah 9:6, But we have to read on into verse 7 and contemplate the way that that section of Scripture is concluded. Again, it reads, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And then verse 7 says this, There will be no end to the increase of his government. Stop there for a moment. That's good news in the kingdom of God. When we hear of governments increasing their own government and their power and authority, that's usually a bad thing. But in the kingdom of God where righteousness prevails, justice and holiness, the increase of his government is a good thing. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The Kana of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. My translation has zeal, but if you'll recall that Hebrew word Cana can also be translated as jealousy. Let me just say this. In the English we kind of have ruined this term a little bit. If the words jealous and zealous sound similar, it's because they're both derivatives from the Greek word zelos, which speaks of this idea of having an ardent passion for something. This is what we're talking about, having a deep passion. In this case, the Lord speaks of his jealousy or zealousness for accomplishing his kingdom, establishing his kingdom. In fact, I think in Espanol, celoso is the word that is used for Exodus 34, 14, his name is Celoso. It is jealous. Again, God is jealous. He has a zeal, an earnest desire to establish his glory so that his people would worship and honor him. That's our privilege. That's why we've been redeemed. So brethren, my prayer is that we would be a jealous people. Not jealous for ourselves, not jealous for other material things, but jealousy for the glory of God. Having a deep and abiding and burning zeal that God himself would be, the centerpiece of everything, he'd be our first love and our chief end. And I would say to you that whatever stands in the way of that jealousy, kill it, mortify it, destroy it. Because this is the very reason why we have been redeemed, is to be a people who are jealous for the glory of God. Between now and the day of our departure from this life, we know this one thing. Our times are in his hand. Now, as much as I wish I could say that we're turning to that hymn right now, Okay, I've mentioned the hymn twice. We'll, we'll get to it at some point. But we do have Day by Day, hymn number 56. Just as we talked about the fact that the Father has ordained the epochs and times of all things, we're about to sing these words. Day by day, in which, with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's coming, but James promises that when trials come, I'm to rejoice even in the midst of those trials. And how how do I do this? I do it trusting in my father's wise bestowment. I've no cause, therefore, to worry or fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. It's so good. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. We don't have to know the future. All that we need to know and remember is who holds our our future in his hands. It is the Lord our God. Our times are in his hands. Let's stand together. Let's sing.